Welcome to the Feeling Bookish podcast. In this episode, Rob and Roman cover a broad swath of topics from minor classics and Lawrence Durrell's Alexandria Quartet to baseball and roaming entropy. Enjoy. Well, hello, everybody, and uh, thank you, Heston, for the fine introduction. If you don't know, uh, Heston Hoffman, our sound engineer, has been doing our intros, which is which is really great. So I'm Rob Fay with Roman Sivkin, and um, it's good to talk to you, Roman. And and Yay. you're you're uh, you're going to be uh, spending time in New York this summer, um, and you were just talking about the 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 hot and humid weather you're hoping to avoid, but uh, I know occasionally you you have mentioned your moves, uh, so we hope that uh, that works out, and uh, we'll continue talking. This time you'll be on the East Coast, so yes, yes, right on Columbus Avenue. Yay! Nice, quiet environment. <laughs> Jealous. Jealous. <laughs> but uh, we good to talk to you, Rob. We, yeah, it is good, and and before we. Um, you know, talk books, do our thing here. Um, a couple of shout outs to some people who do listen. Um, Chris Via, who has a, an incredible um, uh, YouTube channel where he talks books in a really sophisticated way. It's called Leaf by Leaf. Um, and he just said some really, really kind stuff to us. We were fairly candid on some of our channels that we were kind of struggling with the format. We had been interviewing a lot of people. And, um, you know, Roman and I, I think felt that we had. Um, got off track a little bit as wonderful as the guests were. So uh, he just had some kind words, uh, you know, be yourself and uh, keep doing what you're doing. And we really appreciate that, Chris, and, and recommend his um, YouTube channel, Leaf by Leaf. And also to, um, you know, the the uh, queen of book Twitter, um, Reem, he also sent some just really kind words. Um, and it, it really, really helps. I mean, for the most part, Roman and I are not, you know, obsessed with, you know, who's listening and what's going on. But um, yeah, I guess we were, you know, soul searching a bit. And, uh, you know, there were other folks who reached out and, and said nice things. So so here we are just talking books and, and, and not making a big sweat out of it. So uh, so thanks, everybody. We there. found our soul again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which... Um, you know, is no small matter for ex-Catholics, I can certainly say. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, Roman, you know, uh, it's just a great chance for us to talk about what we've been reading lately. Um, you know, I, I, I can sort of, uh, you know, share that I've been doing what I've been um, wanting to do and what I wasn't able to do because of a lot of the busyness in my life. And that's follow those threads. And you and I have talked a lot about that. Is simply you read one book, you come across a reference, you follow it down, or you um, you start getting questions about a certain um, you know writer's um, collection of books, or you start being curious about um, you know a certain intellectual um, uh, development in history, et cetera. And you you can when you have some some time, you can just sort of follow those threads. And so for me. I, I don't even remember at this point what the impetus was, but I, um, I'd always wanted to kind of read the Alexandria Quartet. Um, it's, it's pretty, um, this is by Lawrence Durrell, and it's, you know, pretty unfashionable, I guess, these days, and, and probably not read that often. Um, 
But I think what helped me get started a little bit, Roman, was, you know, uh, Stephen Moore, who we did, we're fortunate enough to talk to over the last eight months or something. You know, his, um, his collection of reviews, my back pages, he had some, some really um, enthusiastic reviews of not even the Alexandria Quartet, but some of the later novels by Durrell. And I think he reviewed a biography of, of Durrell that came out in the, in the 90s which sadly is out of print. I, I, I'm trying to track it down. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm dipping into that. And of course, that's making me think about, um, you know, Egypt naturally and um, the Mediterranean again. Um, and also, you know, how did, how did Alexandria get to be this fascinating city at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th century? Um, you know, this is an Egypt that was, you know, pre, pre uh, Nasser and pre nationalist Egypt, um, when it, um, particularly Alexandria, had a large European population. Um, there was lots of um, Greeks, in particular, uh, French, Italians, but there was also this really interesting mix of um, Syrians and Jews and. Um, uh, 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 Kurds and a, a very odd collection of folks who, um, you know, lived with the, um, the Egyptians and lived with Muslims. And it, it certainly, there were, uh, there were inequities involved and, and certainly Europeans were, um, you know, given certain advantages economically to run businesses, et cetera. But it is interesting to kind of um, look at a society that was, extremely diverse, right? We use that word a lot today. And, and more or less getting along with all these different religions, all these different cultures, the amount of languages that was spoke uh, in the streets of Alexandria, you know, um, you know Arabic and, and Ladino, right? The Judeo-Spanish right, right. uh, dialect, which I was telling you I'd never heard of and fascinated me. So, so that's led to all sorts of reading, um, you know, I could go on and on and on. But, you know, the one thought, Roman, which maybe is a is something you probably have a few ideas on is like, so there are four novels in the Alexandria Quartet, and they follow primarily this, you know, expatriate, or I shouldn't say expatriate, that's, that's the wrong way to characterize it. These, these European ancestral Alexandrians, some of whom are, you know, from from Istanbul or from some of the Greek islands or um, were born in Egypt, but have European ancestry. So it's a very complex situation, very different than the Egypt today, where it's, um, you know, obviously primarily Egyptian, Muslim uh, majority. Um, but it, so these novels explore Alexandria and, and you know, Durrell is a wonderful writer. Um, and, you know, there is a bit of, uh, Orientalism going on. There's a bit of you know exoticizing what's happening, but he is such a really really good writer that he's he's worth it. But the thing that um, is fascinating, my my takeaway, and I think probably worth talking about is, I think I finally understand what a minor classic is, because when you read <laughs> the Alexandria Quartet, you realize that there are there are particular sections where he's focusing on a particular character. And clearly he has that character and clearly the passion is there. The language is flowing and they're brilliant. They stand up to E.M. Forster or, you know, Joseph Conrad or, or, you know, pick your writer. 
But then there are vast sections where he gets lost as a writer, where he isn't quite in love with a scene or a character and is perhaps doing it because he needs to knit something together. And you, you start to get a sense of, aha, this is what a minor classic is. It's uneven. Um, there are parts that, that just don't hold up. And um, it, it's interesting to, to go through something like that. Um, and it, it does make you think about what survives, what doesn't, why do some things survive? Does the Alexandria Quartet deserve to survive? Mm, I don't know. Um, and, and, and I don't know if that rings a bell for you, Roman, in terms of, you know, minor classics, things that you've read that um, excite you in a certain way, but you, when you put it against the, the truly great writers, you, you, you can yeah. see where there's, there's holes. Yeah, no, I, th- there's, I, th- I think minor classics are, well, first of all, I mean, there's time. Time oh, tends to change perspectives you know sometimes something is considered a classic or a minor classic and then it you know a hundred years goes by and people just don't read it anymore period so things could change where we can you know our perceptions of you know are always colored by the time we live in there's no objective of this is yeah this is a classic at least not not so clear cut um but yeah i totally i totally understand what you're saying like um um Books like uh, Stoner, John was it John Williams? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, uh, I I generally stay away from kind of straight straight go ahead type of realist type of fiction or prose, mm. but uh, I've heard so many little you know things over about this book over the years. So I finally read it and I I got it. Uh, for, to me, it was a minor masterpiece, uh, even though. Yeah, maybe, perhaps it's a it's a major man. I don't know. It's it's a minor masterpiece to me because. I don't particularly like the genre, but I I saw what, how he put the book together. He certainly made me read it and made me feel slightly astonished at what he was doing. It's such a tight book that's almost a perfect book. But again, because of the of its scope, because of its genre, um, it didn't quite get there to the pinnacle for me. But I still enjoyed it. Um, I've, I've had Durrell, by the way, in my sights for many, many years, um, never yeah. really dipped in. You know, I really enjoyed his, um, his relationship with Henry Miller, whom I did read. Uh, yeah, that's, that's that something, that's something yeah. I wasn't aware of. And, and he, he was a, um, he was writing in a certain way that is Durrell until he read, I think it was Tropic of Cancer and, and had his mind blown. And, and mm. wanted to write, not necessarily, um, I, I think he, he was interested in sexuality and in being more frank, um, but, but I think he simply saw that you could, I mean, the thing you get from Henry Miller, what I get is like, be yourself, right? This is a person who, who really, his, he matched his talent and his instincts to, to exactly who he was. I mean, I always felt that when I read Henry Miller, I, I, I feel like I know that man through and through. Um, right. Th- there was, there was, it was completely transparent, you know, um, and I'm not talking mm-hmm. about like the content, but the, um, the, the energy of his personhood. Just, he, just he was an open person. He was a very open yeah. person. Right, right, yeah. right, right, right. And I think that, um, 
I'm assuming that's what Durrell reacted to, like, oh my goodness, I'm I'm writing artifice, right? I'm I'm, and, and writers can play these games, and sometimes you you see that that you're you're holding back, you're you're um, putting a buffer between you and the emotional impact of of the work, and so I I think he got he got um, flummoxed in a good way um, by Miller and really changed directions, and it's hard for me to to. The, the one part that's interesting about the Alexandria Quartet is, so, so Durrell reading Henry Miller and then also starting to read like Ulysses and reading the modernist literature, he, he really wanted to take on the mantle. He wanted to, um, to write very serious books and he wanted to rethink, you know, form and structure. And so the, the one thing that is interesting about the Alexandria Quartet is there is no um, real story um, and he, there are these like odd prefaces where he essentially kind of says that. Um, and so you, you do dart around from character to character. You, you don't get a plot um, of any kind. And so that's, that doesn't feel particularly revolutionary, you know, in our time. But, but to tie into our conversation about, you know, reading these minor classics is the one thing that we, we don't have the benefit of by reading them, you know, decades later, is we don't have that ability to to know what it was like in that moment, right? To read those as they were fresh, where you know, reading this in 1942, Lawrence Durrell's books might have might have felt like I don't know the right. way we think about Faulkner, like whoa, what's going on here? I'm I'm having trouble reading this, and um, you know, certainly Alexandria. Um, you know, would have seemed incredibly exotic. And um, so, yeah, I'm not sure what my point is, but. Uh, well, uh, did you, um, you're going to, you think you're going to finish the books? How, I, how's that I, looking? Are you, I are you really so, into so, it? Um, so, so there's, you know, four novels. I've read two of them. Um, and then I guess, which leads to sort of my, part of my larger introduction is I got sidetracked in a great way. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, so somehow, while reading this, you know, I start really thinking again um, about the, what you and I were talking about this, I guess the old term is the, the Levantine countries, the countries that mm-hmm. now are what, Israel, Lebanon, Syria. Syria, yeah, yeah. I don't know if Turkey is considered part of that. And, you know, it's funny, that word, dude, it's, there's actually one of those, um, you know, Syrian Islamist militias. They actually have one of their names is like the um, the the Islamic Organization for the for you know freeing the Levantine countries or something like that. <laughs> so I was like, oh wow, that 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 word is still in use. Um, so I, oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. So what happened? I started reading about the Ottoman Empire because I'm like, man, how 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 did? I guess I wasn't really aware that that Egypt had had such a cosmopolitan city, right? The, the, um, the people living in Alexandria in 1920, they're like, we're the friggin' Paris of, we're the Paris of Paris. They weren't even saying, you know, we're the Paris of the Middle East. They were like, we're it. We're a cosmopolitan. We have all these arts. We have Paris this, is the know, Alexandria of Europe. Is that, yeah, is that what totally. you're saying? <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. And so the, the way that people, you know, used to think of Beirut. Um, so it was really fascinating to be, to, to kind of, you know, f- 
try to understand how, how did it come to be, right? Because today Egypt is a very different society. It started with um, the, um, you know, the, the, the nationhood of Egypt and whatever it was in the 1950s. And, and of course, then there's, you know, um, you know more of a, a religious influence in the country, Muslim Brotherhood. Yada yada yada. Well, so it became different... very very insular. Yeah, it became closed. Absolutely right. So it's a very right. different country right now. Um, but I started reading about the Ottoman Empire, and then the the um, uh, the conflict with uh, um, the Palestinians and Israel flared up again, and so I started thinking more about you know quote unquote diversity uh, in the Middle East, particularly under the Ottomans, because the Ottomans for all of their you know, this was not an equitable constitutional democracy, but they were, they weren't interested in, you know, stamping out religious minorities. They, they would tax for a long time, they would tax Jews and Christians, right? They wouldn't, they wouldn't tax Muslims, obviously, it was a Islamic empire, but they were, um, you know, essentially, if you paid your taxes, um, and, you know, follow the local magistrates and didn't cause a lot of trouble. You know, you, could, you could have your community. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for the most part. And so, um, you know, it, it, so this is how there were certain ways of doing things where, you know, whatever. There was the Jewish quarter. There was the Armenian quarter. There were, um, you know, there were, um, you know, Coptic Christians. And then there were like tons of Europeans, right, who were... Um, you know, the Greeks in particular in Alexandria were running factories and they were kind of like the, you know, the business uh, community, you know, and, and lots of funds mm. were flowing from, uh, you know, from Egypt to, to Athens and so forth. And so um, I well, just Is that similar to like, it's like Ro the Roman Empire did that's the same thing. They yeah. sort of absorb territories, but let people sort of, you know, You're as long as you pay your dues. Right. Do whatever we, we don't really care. Um, and, I mean, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, to a certain extent, did that as well. Um, totally. And it really makes you... And of course, we, you know, as modern peoples, we really revere, like, statehood or nationhood. Like, you know, we're all like, yeah, man, you know, the, the Ukrainians, they have their own country. Or like, you know, go Estonians. You know, I mean, we're into it. Right. We think it's great. But it, but it also has brought How up a wrong lot of problems. <laughs> What's that? How wrong we are. You know I me, mean, I'm, 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 ant, I'm, I'm, I'm an anti-statist. Right. So, so it, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, no one's going to propose like, hey, let's bring back the Ottoman Empire. But, but it does make you think about like, well, I, I'm, I'm not an anarchist. I, I know you have certain leanings, but it's like, what if, what if there wa was a sort of loose, culturally flexible, uh, you know, regional confederacy that, that, you know, that had interests in municipal state functions, but just wasn't, just wasn't really interested in. Yeah, it didn't, in, didn't, didn't push its own dogma or its own sort of weird brand of patriotism. Yes. Yeah. That, that and, would be and, nice. And, that would be nice. And, and here's the part, and I know I'm getting far afield from literature, but the part that really fascinated me was um, I started poking around a little bit like, cause you know, the British kind of ran Egypt for a little while, kind of the interim between, the Ottomans and, and, you know, statehood uh, in the fifties. Right. right. So, so they were involved and of course they, they, um, you know, they had the, the palace, the Palestine territory before the state of Israel was created. And so, 
from what I understand is that in Jerusalem itself, you know, there, as you know uh, very well, there's, you know, what, the Armenian quarter, the Jewish quarter, right. you know, exactly. Christian. And so, yeah. Exactly. And so I think we tend to think that there was always this, you know, really rigid segmentation of people. But what I was reading is that it was actually the British when they sort of, um, you know, inherited uh, this territory and were running it, they got really obsessed with um, issuing like ID cards and classifying like within Jerusalem itself, like, oh, okay, so you're a Muslim and, you know, okay, you're Jewish. And they started to really make it a thing. Where, you know, during the, you know, the pre-British days of, of the Ottomans running things, there just, there was more mixing, right, that went on. Mm. And so there was this interesting idea that they created a, a, a real kind of, um, you know, clear sense of, of racial, ident racial and religious identification that, you know, played out in a rather ugly way once well because it stratifies you right away you put a yeah. border saying i'm this you're that right and you know and then you then there's conflict um i think that's part of the reason why the way you're describing alexandria that it's it it sort of did it, it abolished a lot of these sort of borders mental borders and physical borders for that matter um and so that so that you did have that mixing and i think that mixing is key it's a cosmopolitan way of you know, just like the, your ability to see the other as yeah. not some sort of weird person or weird community that lives over there and will never mix with them or they're dangerous or something, you know, right. uh, and, that mixing is just so vital. And, you know, I mean, it, I, I, I do feel compelled to point out that, you know, if, if you were a impoverished Egyptian in, in 1910 or 1920, you did not have the same advantages, privileges, or exceptions as as the um, European Alexandrians or the people who had ancestry that was, you know, Greek, Italian, or French. Um, they had they had actually, you know, more economic advantages, and, and so there there wasn't, you know, complete equity. So I, I I sort of want to make that point, but it does make you mourn the fact that that um, Egyptian nationalism had to sort of expel. And, and they were, the Europeans were expelled in the 50s. Their, essentially, their property was confiscated um, and it be, they made it essentially impossible to continue living in Alexandria. So, so people went back to um, Turkey and Greece and France and Italy and Spain. Um, and so you don't have those communities um, anymore. But um, my larger point, I know I'm dominating the conversation, Roman. I must have been no, no, fine. Too, too isolated here the last few days <laughs> uh, in my, my work from home state. But um, it led me to a book that I am reading along with Durrell, but I am savoring. I, am, I, am, I refuse to finish it. I, I'm nibbling on it at night. And it is a book I want to like press into everyone's hands. And it's by... Um, the Turkish writer Orhan Pamuk, and it is simply called Istanbul. And I actually have a um, illustrated edition, meaning it's filled with all of these beautiful, um, mostly black and white photos from the history of Istanbul. And the wonderful thing about this book, dude, it's a book of nonfiction. It's difficult to classify. 
It probably is a combination. If you had to market the book, it's a it's a memoir, but it's also a um, a kind of odd cultural and personal historical view of of the city of Istanbul. It's kind of a love letter to Istanbul, but a love letter with a lot of melancholy and regret and wonder. It's such a wonderful book, and it. The chapters don't make a lot of sense. One chapter might be about his crazy, uh, you know, drunken uncle. And then the next chapter is about like the weird uh, uh, Istanbul habit of people standing by the Bosphorus and, and taking intricate notes of all the tankers and ships that pass through the Bosphorus on their way to the Mediterranean. It, it's a weird book and I absolutely adore it. Right. Um, hey, and I, keep, I love I weird books. That's great. Oh man. So um, <laughs> you know, if he he's the Nobel Prize winner from from Turkey several years ago. Um, right. You know, most probably most famous for the novel Snow. Um, so yeah, I, I just feel like you know, and then I I read a book on the Ottomans, you know, a historical book. So I I feel like I'm I'm following my impulses. I'm immersing myself. That's it. That's it. World. I mean, you, you started reading something and then it led to something else and led to something else and uh, your horizons ex expanded. I mean, I, I love it. That's just, that's exactly the way to do it, you know? Oh, it's, I, uh, it's wonderful. A I, I, uh, couple of things came to mind as you were talking. Um, yeah. I was thinking of Albert Cossary, the the French-Egyptian writer who really, technically not really Egyptian. I mean, he's he is, but he lived most of his life in in, in Paris, and mm. much like Nabokov, he lost the flavor of his country. Besides, I mean, his, Egypt Egypt changed so much when he was away, and it just became right. something very different, like you like you were describing. But I, I love Kosari just because he he gives me that you know. <laughs> speaking of my anarchist bent, he's a very kind of anarch anarchic anarchic writer. Not in terms of yeah. the way he writes, but but his themes. Um, he's always uh, championing the, the sort of the the low life, the the thief, the hashish smoker, the 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 mm -hmm. people who are just refusing to work. Uh, you know, all things that speak to my heart. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but. Uh, um, so I, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about Durrell as you were talking about it. You know, I've I've always always kind of like I said nibbled around the, the edges of Durrell, or Durrell, sorry. Um, yep. Uh, but I came across this book that he wrote about Taoism, uh, which shocked me. Uh, I, sure. I guess he wrote it later in life. I think we might. I think we've I've talked about this before, because he was influenced so much by Henry Miller, and Miller was kind of a natural Taoist. I mean, he actually read the Taoists and, and really championed them, but he was also uh, by inclination sort of a Taoist. Um, and so I think that rubbed off on Durrell a little bit. Uh, I'm sure he had some of that naturally to begin with, otherwise he wouldn't have been friends with Miller in the first place. Um, so I, 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 I can't wait to dig into this book. I've had it on my shelves for a long time now, but I, I keep getting distracted. Um, so thank you for that little nudge. I think I'm going to get back to it. And I've, yeah. I've always wanted to read the Alexander Quartet. So I, I think I've just seen, just seen one of the books. I think I have that somewhere. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, um, is it okay to start story. anywhere? Or do you, is it a good idea to start the beginning? Cause the characters recur yeah, and stuff you, like that. So, so, um, the, the good thing about his, his intention and his plan 
to have these, you know, modernist non-plot driven books is yes, you can pick up um, any one of them, I think, dive in and sort of appreciate it. So the characters do recur in vague ways in and out and you're like, oh yeah, this is the lover of so-and-so. Okay, I've got it. But it's really not essential. So I think that was part of his his design. Justine um, is... It's a very thin book. You could jump in and you, you'd really figure out if, okay, is this the world I want to be a part of or not? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, dude, there, there are passages where um, you, you, you put the book down and you walk around the room and you're like, I can't believe that those three paragraphs, they were perfect. They were, mm. uh, I'm, I'm, yeah. So when he's good, he's really good. And that's why I say minor classic. Um, it, but it, I love the fact that you, that you, both, you both alluded to the style of the writing uh, yeah. the, the the kind of prose it is, but also what really fascinated you was the is the content is the is the setting. Uh, I could just I could just picture your mind roaming the streets of Alexandria with with Durrell. Um and it 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 brought something to mind. I, I stumbled across this term. I think I mentioned to you a while ago. It's, uh, it's called roaming entropy. R O A M I N G. Roaming entropy, uh, yeah. or R E. Uh, it's I guess it's a term that was developed in some sort of a study of mice about how they um, they explore their territory. Uh, and they found that uh, mice who are sort of kind of brave and take the lead and go searching in weird corners of their environment, uh, uh, the, sort of the novelty seeking uh, <laughs> mice and rats, uh, they um, they had better brains. They had bigger brains. They developed um, neurogenesis, meaning they 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 developed new neurons, uh, um, and I think they uh, they they studied humans with that as well a little bit and found that that you actually get in a better mood the more you sort of seek around and look around. And I think books like like Durrell's Alexandria Quartet and any book that's set kind of in this exotic setting, or maybe not even exotic, but in just a setting that's explored minutely and, and brought to life by the prose, in a way, gives you this roaming entropy while you're sitting on your butt in your yeah. room reading. Uh, totally. It's this kind of like a cheat sheet, you know, a, cheat, a cheating a way of, of getting into RE in a roaming entropy. And I tell you, no wonder, I, I feel I'm, I'm definitely a novelty seeker. Yeah. I, uh, I, I can't stay in one place for too long without getting bummed out and, and wanting to move on. Um, but I certainly have that. Uh, I think part of my fascination with science fiction, even though my brain obviously knows that these things are not real, you know, some Martian landscape or some weird uh, spaceship out there exploring things. I, I obviously I know it's not, you know, it's a it's a fiction. Yet my brain doesn't, and so my mm-hmm. brain sees novelties, looking at all these things as if they were real. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I, I don't know if I'm growing any new neurons. <laughs> reading pulp pulp science fiction but uh, but um but something like that happens i do believe i mean i do feel better when i usually read um mm. and sometimes when we uh like our, i'm thinking of um ken campbell um uh, who who you know had all these one one man shows that he was doing about about just bizarre things and then at one point he he just like you know i've run out of life i've got nothing <laughs> Nothing, nothing else to write about. So uh, he asked for money to go traveling, and uh, th- he got it. And he came back and wrote incredible one-man show about it. So, yeah. it, I mean, that's that's the ideal, of course, the actual traveling. 
but lacking that ideal, um, reading books, I think, is is probably second best as far as, you know, amping up your roaming entropy. Well, I guess I could call it Roman entropy, but that's, that's something different. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, I just love that roaming entropy. It's such a poetic term, and it just comes from mm. science. I just, roaming entropy, I'm, you know, I could see a short story named that or something. Um, I, 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 I love it. I love it. And um, <laughs> let, let, me, let me give you a sense of the particular roaming entropy that I got from, uh, from Justine. And here's just a little passage to get a sense of his prose and, and, and what he can do with language and the deliberateness of it. So he's describing this um, Italian Alexandrian named uh, Capodistria. And so he's, he's a, you know, he likes to uh, take in uh, you know, women at restaurants and, and kind of, you know, give, give them a, give them a look. And he, he's a, you know, central character, central character. So, so this is just the description of, of kind of his, um, his gaze, so to speak. He says, um, he says, Capodistria has the purely involuntary knack of turning everything into a woman. Under his eyes, chairs become painfully conscious of their bare legs he impregnates things. At table, I have seen a watermelon become conscious under his gaze so that it felt like the seeds inside it, stirring with life. Women feel like birds confronted by a viper when they gaze into the narrow flat face with its tongue always moving across the thin lips. And in this idea of the seeds in a watermelon, like becoming impregnated under his his you know lustful gaze i mean it's incredible and i love it i love it he has passages like that that are unforgettable unforgettable imagery um but to your larger point i think he survives because of the city of alexandria and the fact that he he kind of staked his ground there and and sort of said wait a minute you know this is i'm going to write about this and i think he understood that that was really his you know central character. Um, E.M. Forster oh, that's uh, wonderful. also spent time there, um, uh, I believe, working for the British Foreign Service, or maybe it was the, one of the intelligence services, actually. And he, you know, had a similar fascination with it and actually wrote a really, um, wrote a, um, a travel guide to Alexandria, you know, a, a, like a Lonely Planet guide kind of thing by E.M. Yeah. Forster. <laughs> Um, it would be fascinating to to take that guide, go to present day Alexandria, and, and walk around and 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 see how much has changed. Um, you know, and kind of document. I bet that. a lot. <laughs> yeah, of but some of the buildings. You know, it's funny. I, I was just reading about um, Montaigne, Michel de Montaigne, and how he traveled. Yeah, you know, most people know about him through his essays, but he also yeah. wrote a, 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 you know some travel books, and he he had this long trip that took him to Rome, uh, uh, which he loved because Latin was actually his first language. His, his, he had a very unusual education. His father was kind of a very, I guess by our, our standards, very liberal uh, in terms of education. So he, he made him learn Latin. He made all the servants around him speak Latin to him as he was as growing up. So, But anyway, but anyway he, he, forgot, he actually forgot the language by the time he got to Rome, but that's not what I'm trying to say. When he was walking around Rome, checking it out. It was there for about, what, four or five months. Uh, uh, most of the ruins that we actually see today were still buried, uh, you know, because there was, you know, people just kept on dumping things and not excavating. And so uh, 
the city, the Rome was much less like the ancient Rome that we sort of see it now, you know, with with all of its ruins. Um, back in the 1500s when when montaigne was was checking it out it was a very different city but not the way we think about it it was like more more buried so to speak it was more ancient back then you know 400 years ago 500 years ago than it is now which is kind of interesting so i'm i'm you know who the hell knows what's going to happen in 400 years this alexandria yeah. might come back in some form culturally socially politically uh, yeah. And maybe even physically by you know, having it being restored or something like that. So, and also just uh, you know reading about Montaigne and just the way he just because it's just on my mind because I've been reading about him um, and the way he's been received over the centuries. Um, going back to our point about you know minor classics, uh, different centuries have read him in their own light, so to speak, in their in, in their own context. Uh, with very different results, you know. Um, so it's quite possible that that I think it's I'm I'm actually trying to express a very Montanian uh, sentiment that we shouldn't jump to we should not jump but we shouldn't reach conclusions. Uh, we should reserve judgment. Um, I think I think I think our 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 corner of the world, the book world, so to speak, is all about judgment. You know, I mean, yeah. reviews and and this is a good book, this is a bad book, this is a minor classic, this is a major classic. It's all about those kinds of judgments. And while there is some truth to them, I think there is never a full truth to them. So, I uh, being sort of this kind of a natural skeptic, just like Montaigne. By the way, I love reading about Montaigne because he reminds me of me. I know it sounds very selfish and grandiose. I'm not trying, I'm not comparing myself in terms of his genius. I'm just saying, geez, that guy sounds like he had very much the same ideas or same approach to life as I do. And I don't know about you, Rob. I, 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 I'm guessing that the answer will be yes, but I love coming across characters in literature or, or, or writers or in, in the literary world that are, that remind me of me. <laughs> it's not, a, again, it's not, a, it's not a, some sort of a, selfish kind of thing, uh, ego-based thing. It's more like uh, a recognition in sort of a, a William Gaddis kind of way, uh, using that word of like, aha, this, this somebody who sort of affirms affirms my my outlook on the world, you know, and not not my intellectual outlook particularly, but just my instinctual outlook. It's just the way I mm -hmm. feel about the world, you know, mm -hmm. and I I just and I I I just love that. And strangely enough, with Montaigne, just Montaigne, just like various centuries received them differently. I also received them differently because I tried reading the essays in my 20s and it just didn't go. I just didn't get it. I was bored. Uh, and suddenly, you know, uh, I'm 50 and and these essays just speak to me. He, he speaks to me. Very, and, very personable writer, you know. And, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but but isn't the you know the current American way of of thinking of them, or at least marketing them in in bookstores, is you know kind of like self help, but, self help, you know, for, yeah, for intellectuals or like you know you know tap right. into the wisdom, tap into the wisdom of this wise French you know lord who well, spent a lot of time at the castle, right? Yeah, it's all you know yeah. the the Stoics have faced that. I mean, it's it's all of you know. Unfortunately, we're, our self help sort of culture is kind of co opted things like that. And 
I mean, there's some truth to that. First of all, self-help is ridiculous. I mean, you know, it's 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 a contradiction in terms. It's it's an oxymoron. I mean, just if you're going to help anyone, you're going to help yourself by it. Whatever whatever happens externally, uh, or not help yourself for that matter. But my point is that it's. Um, is that because he was a kind of a generalist philosopher, Montaigne? He was more like a, not like a, you know, a, a scholastic like Augustine or something like that. Augustine, um, right. he he, but he did concentrate on the on the major question of how to live. How do you live a right. good life? Right. And I think as soon as as soon as you have that kind of approach, the self help uh, monsters uh, come out of the corners <laughs> and start uh, and start marketing it as that um but it does it it does improve one i think it would not maybe improve again maybe maybe if you take it as advice like that and try to live by it i can see how that can be considered self-help but he he, he retired to his manor right he was a wealthy person and he he was very serious about about the pursuit of knowledge and is that you know the basic story. Of, of, yes of and he, no. Yeah. He was yeah. he was again. He she reminded me of, of of kind of of us. What he loved most yeah. to do is go into his study, and he did build a little section of his estate that was just his. And his wife's uh, part was kind of across the whole estate on the other side. Um, and he had about a thousand books in there, you know, classics that he really enjoyed reading over and over again. And it's not like he was a hermit. I mean, he had a he had a bustling. Uh, you know, manner that he had to uh, sort of manage, which he hated. He hated the day-to-day management of his estate. You know, he was producing wines and he was a, a mayor of Bordeaux for a while. So he got involved in politics. Again, kind of more like by, by not by inclination, but, but just it was kind of what ex- was expected of him. But sure, by inclination, sure. he admitted to himself, he's like, I'm lazy, I'm indolent. I like to be idle. I like to read. I like to write. I like to ride my horse. I don't really like to work. Um, of course, he could, you know, he could sort of get away with it being in his, you know, in his privileged uh, position. Um, but he did live through some horrible, horrible times in France. It was during the civil wars in France, and uh, he really almost never got respite from it. Uh, as as the uh, as the older he got, the worse France got, you know, uh, politically. Um, so he saw some hor- hor- horrible things, but he reacted to them in very different ways. Like he didn't shut himself off because he was afraid of being murdered in bed by some, you know, robbers under, you know, coming into his uh, estate. He left the gates open usually, even during the worst of the civil wars. Um, and so he was just truly just himself. And I think that this armed a lot of people, sometimes literally, you know, sometimes, you know, I think there's a story about some soldiers um uh, uh, coming up to his estate and he was just so open with them and so frank and it's like, you know, whatever guys, go ahead, just eat, drink, whatever you need. Uh, so, and I think the, the head of the soldiers was like, you know, we were going to basically take over your estate and just like, you know, chase you out or kill you. But because you were so upfront with us and, and generous, we decided not to. <laughs> <laughs> so he kind of survived that way. And I just, you know, I, I can sort of really respect that. Um, but again, he, his reception over the centuries is so different, sure. you know, whether it was the Protest, Protestants pushing him as a, some, some sort of like a rebel, uh, rabble rouser guy who's like, who's supporting them against the Catholics or, or whether it was the romantics who totally kind of remade him 
in in their own romantic image uh and and really ignore the stuff that was very you know antithetical to them because of their you know, romantic dispositions um so so i'm i'm just i'm i i really like the kinds of books that are open to that kind of uh, interpretation and 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 multiple interpretations and depending on your perspective depending on your you know historical context and then also maybe think of of our historical context with all this uh, woke stuff cancel this the right wing it just uh, you know we yeah. we as we lived through this past year with all the all their horrific events um it just made me think of I guess it's kind of a kind of a stoic thing, like well, it's it's happened before, and people survived, and life went on, and uh, you just you know you just keep on going because if you lose all hope and and say this is it, the the world is ending, then I think yeah. you're you're doing yourself and and those around you a disservice, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I mean you know for those of us who are you know have had fairly cushy middle class lives and you know are are white. It it it's a bit of a shock, right? To to really have history kind of crash into your your living room and you know, like boom, mm. you know, social disturbances, pandemics, um, body counts, that kind of thing. Um, but again, it's not it's not like it's nothing new, Rob. It's been no, going no, on, but, been but going on forever. But it's um, you know, uh, if I just take myself as an example, you know, my my parents are classic post war baby boom Americans who, um, you know, were working people, um, didn't go to college, but, but really flew, really flowed right into that prosperous post-war, you know, unions and high pay. And, and, you know, we had our problems, but there, there just was this sense of that, like, whatever, like history has been put to the side for us. And, you know, I kind of was, was born into that. Um, and so I think, it, for for a lot of Americans, um, you know, since World War II, it's been a fairly cushy ride. You know, if you weren't black or or you know, uh, from some or, marginalized right. part of the society, right. it's been a pretty pretty cushy ride. So so what you're saying yeah, is like, uh, hello, there are no exceptions. You know, uh, the world tends to be a pretty rough and tumble place, and you should you know, raise your glass of scotch uh, when you can and say, wow, today's peaceful and, and things are going well because um, you just don't know. Um, you know, my right. but, you know, even, but the, the whole, the, I think, I think Montaigne's, uh, the, the lesson that I'm drawing from him is that it's, it's when things don't go well. And I certainly reacted badly to a bunch of things this past year uh, due oh. to COVID, due to being exiled from my home. Um Due to the political instability, I, you know, I fought with a friend, uh, one of my oldest friends, who I'm no longer friends with. So it, it was, it was, it was these these eruptions, uh, external eruptions that affected me internally, and I think maybe this is the self help part of Montaigne is that he reminds us that even during the parts where it's just horrible and the plague is upon you and there's instability in the country and you know people are being drawn and quartered around the corner 
uh, I mean, not that you should be raising a glass to that, but you should be able to uh, take it with, with equanimity and mm. and not let it not let it just pull you down with it because then it's yeah. just it's just you're contributing to the problem. I mean, that's the Buddhist the, the basic Buddhist kind of approach uh, I, is how do you change the world? I, well, totally. but it, you change yourself first, <laughs> first but, but you, I, then the world. But I, but I would, you know, you know, choose the terminology you want. But I, I would argue that that there's a sort of spiritual maturity in that perspective, which isn't simply just a, a, a deliberate mind switch. There, there's got to be some, you know, to put it in a Buddhist sense, some practice to really be able to, um, you know, in, in all the traditions have lessons and teachings that echo exactly what you just said, Roman. Um, where you uh, you keep your equanimity, you know, in the midst of um, of difficult times, because they're they're going to cycle through, and you just can't. You know, I I I I love baseball, as you know, and the really interesting thing, dude, about baseball players, as opposed to watching uh, football players or soccer players or basketball players, is the the games are so long, and it's such a difficult game, and there's there's so many like like every good thing is always followed by a bad thing in baseball it's like most of the time you fail and you don't get a hit right like if you hit a bat if you hit a ball 30 percent of the time you're considered a genius hitter yeah you're great right Right. so 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 what you see with baseball players is like they don't get up or down that much because it's it's too much you just can't like i think a basketball team the the energy and the ability of five people on a court to take over a game and then get adrenaline and then ride it and just take the game over and win it. Like there's, I think there's more of a sense of control um, in other sports where baseball, it's like, you know, like the forces of history or something, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) you know, you show up and then suddenly, you know, Hitler invades and you're like, shit, you know, the Germans are coming. You know, it's like be, it's like being a Russian or something. You're like, oh, it's fate, you know. Um, Pinch Hitler. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, um, so, so I guess that's why I'm I, I'm saying like, I think that's a I think that's a spiritual maturity, which is, which which requires, you know, some 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 practice. To put it in Buddhist yeah, terms, yeah, um, Well, I mean, you know, with, with Montaigne, he definitely relied on the Stoics, uh, as far as that goes. You know, like again, don't don't jump to judgment. Uh, uh, be sort of quote unquote indifferent to things. Though that's that sounds cold, but that's what the Stoics kind of suggested. Uh, yeah. You know, to contemplate your own death on a daily basis. No, thank you. But you know, that's it's it's one of their tools. Um, so. Uh, yeah. What was the, uh, what was the expression that uh, when we were involved with Zen with some wonderful teachers in California? What was the? It, it might be mixing traditions now, but wasn't there a kind of story about like, you know, um, uh, that? And, and the punchline was always like, good situation, bad situation, bad situation, good situation. And there was some. Oh kind yeah, of like, that's one of my favorite stories. It's actually it's a it's a Taoist story. Uh, can, can, forget can you exactly. Tell the story? Yeah, I forget exactly how it goes, but it's something like um, a farmer and his son 
yeah. were walking in the fields one day and yes. they, they found a bunch of wild, you know, horses and brought them back. And the neighbors came around and was like, oh, wow, what good luck. You know, this is great for you guys. And the farmer goes, eh, good luck, bad luck. I don't really know. And the next day, you know, his son is uh, trying to tame one of these wild horses. He falls mm. off, breaks his leg. And the neighbors come around saying, oh, what bad luck. You know, I broke a leg, blah, blah, blah. And the farmer goes, eh, bad luck, good luck. I don't really know. <laughs> uh, you know, and then a week later, the, the, they come around to uh, recruit young people to go fight the latest war. And because the farmer's son is lame, he is not picked to go fight in this, you know, probably lethal war. And so, and so on. You know, the, the neighbors come around, it's like, oh, good luck, et cetera, et cetera. So it goes on and on. Um, so again, you just don't. Same thing with the minor classic thing. We just don't. We just don't know. We yeah. don't. We're not gods, Rob. We are not gods. I know we'd like to think sometimes, but that's just not the case. And so we don't have the full picture. That the full picture of the world is non-apprehendable at at any moment. Uh, so we have serious gaps in our knowledge. I mean, okay, let me let me speak for myself. I have serious gaps in my knowledge. Um, and so I was, I, I don't know what, what strikes me as incredible. Uh, let's say what struck me as incredible, maybe 30 years ago, uh, now strikes me as maybe not so incredible. And so I've had this perspective of also being around for five decades. Um, and you realize sooner or later that things go up and down in, in your estimation, in the world's estimation, um, certain things do endure, um, at least, at least so far, <laughs> yeah. I mean, who's to say what's going to be around eight thousand years from now? I mean, are we going to still look at Homer and say, "Hey, Homer, incredible"? I don't know. Mm. Um, uh, I would like to think so, but I don't know. Um, yeah. So this reserve, this reservation of judgment is is it's it's not. I think some people call it being wishy washy and not taking. You have to have an opinion. Have an opinion, goddammit. Well, I have always been against that. That's my opinion, of course. But, uh, you know, I, I just don't like strong opinions, uh, to echo one of Nabokov's uh, you know, nonfiction books. Um, that's why I never particularly liked him that much as far as his opinions, because he's just so opinionated. And it's, it's entertaining. Sure, it could sell books. It could get you on the radio. It can get you on TV. We see a lot of talking heads with opinions everywhere. Uh, but I, for one... Uh, uh, just try not to, or at least I have, I have inclinations. I have sort of, I'm, I'm leaning towards something or away from something, but I'm, I'm, I don't like to just say, this is my opinion. You know, this is what I think. Mm. And, and I probably won't change my mind, you know, mm. because I probably will. I've just been around too long to know that I, I'm wishy-washy. I, I change my mind all the time. Uh, you know, I think that again, things that I liked, I don't like now, uh, you know, so, so things are always just this revolution. Uh, it's got to keeps keeps moving and moving and moving. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Roaming entropy. <laughs> yeah, and and I think um, you know, following your nose with books and and reading reading books that are not you know hot off the presses, I think has the advantage of of um, you know you get you you start kicking around um, in 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 epics and in, um, you know, the minds of odd people like, uh, you know, whomever, right? Um, uh, and it helps. It helps to sort of um, 
not get pulled into the the, the opinion machines and and the demands of of right now, right? You're, you're as you say, you're, there's a sort of a, a demand, right, that you take a stand and that you have you have opinions or that you um, that you take you know contemporary politics very seriously, um, right? All these kinds of things. Look, look, this, um, not, I, I don't want to come across as somebody who just doesn't have any opinions. I have, of course, of course, I have opinions. I mean, that was one of my opinions, right? To not have opinions, but <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a word word play here. But uh, but in general, I think it's okay. Obviously, it's okay to have thoughts and to think a certain thing about a certain thing, so meaning a you know, i.e., an opinion. Uh, as long as you qualify it, as long as you say, well, right now, you know, Roman in, in 2021, what month are we in? June, June 9th at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time or Daylight Time, whatever it is. I think so and so. But, you know, Roman, you know, in 2029 uh, on June 9th at 7 p.m., maybe Eastern Time this time, just to make it a little bit different, uh, will have a, a, the same opinion reversed in his mind or amended or 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 completely annulled. Uh, so I'm open to that all the time because I really, I just, I just, I think that's the only, and this is something that I see in Montaigne as I read. I'm like, oh, wow, that's, that's why I told you that I recognize myself in, in, in what I'm reading is that, uh, it's just such a reasonable thing to do uh, that it's it it prevents fanaticism, it prevents dogma, um, it it I think it increases goodwill and kindness because you're willing to listen to others, you're willing to suspend your judgment, um, and I think uh, to go to go back to sort of our, our the book angle. The more I think, the more we read, I think there's there's been various arguments about you know reading. Fiction, particularly increasing, you know, increasing uh, people's empathy, empathy or something like that. But I think the more you read, I'm going to use this more broad term of roaming entropy. The more you sort of um, see other angles and literally create neurons to, to deal with it, to these with these new angles. Uh, and you, you know, this, this 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 brain plasticity, I guess, is the is the the hip term. Um, so you you literally continually shape your own mind. If I think opinions and especially beliefs, beliefs like Robert Anton Wilson said are basically an indication that you've stopped thinking. Well, I believe this, and that's it. <laughs> you know. Um, so so I I I think you know I'm always a a, a champion of ambiguity of suspending judgment. Uh, um, I think in a strange way. Uh, just like with Montaigne, his laziness and his sort of refusal to do stuff that that people expected him to do uh, gave him a way into this because he could sort of have the space of like suspending his judgment and like not doing things by habit. Um, and it's uh, I, I wanted to mention Rob before we uh, getting close to an hour here, but I've I've been also reading uh, Alejandro Hodorowski. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that name. Um, he uh, actually is known as a filmmaker. Um, Holy Mountain is, uh, I believe, from 1973. Very bizarre movie. All of his movies are bizarre. Uh, very symbolic. There's really no, no, none, none of the Hollywood sort of trappings uh, of you know, his movies are just not. 
that's just strange. I mean, the the Holy Mountain is this quest, this mystical quest. The, the whole film was financed by John Lennon, Yoko Ono, um, because he just couldn't get money from investors because his stated goal in making films is to lose money. <laughs> so no wonder he couldn't get funding. Um, but I've been reading some of his stuff, man. He's he's, he's written some books about this um, the system that he's developed over the past you know, four decades or so called psychomagic. Uh, it sounds crazy, psycho magic, but it's it's this weird uh, use of art that I just love. A very unconventional use of an artistic sort of approach to trick your subconscious into pacifying itself, so to speak. So just to give you a kind of a, a very basic example, let's say you – Let's say you're afraid of death. You're, you know, you're really, you're deathly afraid of death, <laughs> you know? And so a, a psychomagical uh, act would be something like to have your friends dig a, a six foot hole somewhere uh, and give you a symbolic burial to actually put you in the hole, put some earth on you, do some chanting or whatever. So that, and then maybe leave you there for a few hours and then come back, you know, so that your subconscious, which, you know, operates on metaphor and symbols gets this gets this sort of like satisfaction oh well, this is what death is like so i really shouldn't worry about it and so you kind of get over that fear um so but i, I my point is that i love the the way he uses an artistic approach uh, uh not as a self help kind of thing and not really as therapy but more of a, as a spiritual sort of enrichment um which i think art kind of does by itself but he's really developed a system uh, that actually could be used specifically for, uh, you know, impotence or alcoholism or, or you know, bad relations with your family or something like that. So I just I find it really fascinating, and I, I, I recommend anybody listening to just check out the psycho magic of uh, Mr. Hodorowsky. Uh, it's fascinating. I just love it. Is it? I mean, is it? Is it? Um, I mean, it sounds somewhat similar to what I don't know the, the exact name, but like exposure therapy. If you're you know, you're afraid of flying, you know, you, you know, your, your therapist will take you to right, the airport it's, it's, one day. This is more of a, uh, more of an artistic approach. It's not particularly as, as obvious as I've made it sound. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, not yeah, like yeah. You, you have a fear of something and then, you know, you don't like spiders. You're afraid of spiders. So you cover yourself with spiders. Yeah. No, not, yeah. not, not yeah. really. You use symbols yeah. and metaphors that represent your fears or your problems. Uh, and he's really good at pointing out what, what that could be. He's actually very good at that because he studied the tarot for many years and he's, he's kind of clued into that whole subconscious uh, uh, way of using metaphor and symbols. Uh, so that's the fascinating part is the fact that it's, it's using the tools of literature really or art, um, which is metaphor uh, and symbolism to get inside of your own head and do some do some what John Lilly called metaprogramming. Um, you know, John Lilly and, and you know, yeah, Tugiri and yeah. that, that sure. ilk. Um, uh, in fact, John Lilly's book, uh, Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer, even though we don't like to use, at least we, by B, I mean you and I, we don't like to use that metaphor anymore of the mind as a computer, but that was written, what, in the 60s, I think, in the early 60s. But just the title of the book is alone enough to oh, make you think, you know, programming and metaprogramming in the human biocomputer, you know, so it, sort of getting, it, getting behind the, the, the facade of, of the consciousness to really get some work done. 
it, it does make you think that as, um, you know, uh, LSD and psilocybin is now becoming, you know, fairly uh, welcomed into the medical establishment for treating PTSD and some of these things. You, you do wonder if, um, uh, you know, Dr. Leary and Dr. Lilly and uh, Ram Das and some of those other folks, uh, you, you wonder if they will be um, at some point kind of rehabilitated and, and some of their, um, you know, books and early research will will be talked about in the way I that we so. talk about, you know, early, whatever, early. I think so. Uh, I think, I think Leary has, yeah. yeah, Leary has a lot of baggage for sure. And a lot of people don't like him, but I think he was a genius of, of one kind or another. Um, he, 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 turned, like man, he, he, he talked to the FBI, man. Well, uh, come on, man. No, we, I mean, we don't, we, you know, it was the seventies. A lot of things were confusing. I mean, he escaped from federal man. prison. The guy escaped from fucking federal prison. I mean, give him some props, man. Uh, he went to Algeria. He hung out with, he hung out with the, the Black Panthers. Uh, fascinating character. He, no doubt. I he think was, he would definitely be reevaluated. He was in a cell next to Charles Manson, which is absolutely that's right. true. I, I remember yeah. reading that thinking like, nah, that can't be true. That, it's that, true. That, yeah. That's just absolutely. And apparently he read Gravity's Rainbow in a cell next to Charles mm-hmm. Manson. Can you believe that? He loved it. He loved it. And, and he also absolutely loved The Master and Margarita. Uh, he said it was oh, one of his favorite books. He read it also in jail, um, Bulgakov yeah. book, uh, which is one of my favorites. Uh, I I would love to revisit that. I know you've you haven't read it, right, Rob? It's no, not an I've easy. Read it, of course, you have. Okay, sorry. Apologies, apologies, man. But I read it no, that, so that long ago is. that I want to come back to it at some point because it made such an impact on me uh, that I will never forget, and I really, really want to re- revisit that. I. I... Yeah, no, I, yeah, I, we don't have enough time to, for me to praise that book. I, I'm going to, I'm like, that is such a huge topic. And I feel so strongly about that book that I'm literally just going to say, let's move on. So yes, uh, one quick on. thing, <laughs> so one quick, one quick thing before we go is um, I do want to say that I'm, I'm really excited, you know, a, after having just put down uh, newly published books, I want to say that I'm really excited to read a book coming out, I think next week. By Joshua Cohen called the Netanyahu's. And, oh yeah, um, yeah. And so I've been reading some early reviews, and I guess I'm also wondering how come I didn't get my early review copy. But I suppose that's a different topic. Well, we've been out of the we're, we've been out of the game, man. We're we're old hat now. Yeah, we're passe. And, and I suppose and I suppose it's probably because I I, I would I slammed that uh, Uwe Johnson novel by the New York Review of Books Publishing. <laughs> that oh, that yeah. probably got, got got me kind of you're, you're in some them. shit list now. Exactly. But um, uh, I, I've read some early reviews. I'm really excited. I've been wanting to to find my in into Joshua Cohen. And same so, same uh, here. Same here. Yeah. yeah. And so the, I mean, I know, really wanted to love Wits. Wits is a fat book about Jews and science. I mean, Jews at the end of the world. I mean, what's not to love about that, right? I really yeah. wanted to love it, but I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> and. And I remember what was it the numbers his book that dealt with like coding and 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 things like that. I I don't know. I mean, he's I, he's, I, he's a very interesting writer. I I totally agree with you. I think I think I'm gonna give him a bunch more chances just because he's working. He's a working guy. Uh, he just did something about Finnegan's Wake on some podcast. So he's obviously yes. into Finnegan's Wake. Um, I have all kinds of respect for him as far as his ability of you know his writing ability, his writing chops. I just. Again, I, I'm going to reserve judgment. Uh, I 
maybe it was the wrong time for me to dip into his stuff, but I'll keep trying. Like, like you said, because he, he is, he's a working novelist who, yeah. who's actually trying to do stuff. So, and that's, yeah. that's and, always exciting. And, you know, I mean, book Twitter, if you want to make the case to us of like a previous Cohen novel that we absolutely must read, please do. I, I, I welcome, you know, being pushed in that direction a little bit to read more, but, but the part that kind of caught my attention was it's based on a visit that he made to uh, Harold Bloom's house in Connecticut, they were going to do a, um, or they did do a, a Q&A for the Los Angeles Review of Books. And so um, when he went to Bloom's house, uh, Bloom told him this story about years ago, he had hosted uh, at Princeton, this Israeli historian. And this Israeli historian was kind of foisted on <laughs> Harold Bloom for the weekend. It was like, well, you're Jewish. Uh, can, can you host this Israeli historian? And Harold Bloom's like, well, I'm not a historian. Um, and so he, he apparently, you know, uh, had to hang out with, uh, you know, this famous Israeli historian. And so that, you know, that uh, captured the imagination of Joshua Cohen. And so he's, he's used that as the, you know, the kernel of, of uh, you know, an anecdote to kind of tell his story. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the, uh, the copy describing the book, and it says... Um, it says Reuben Blum, a Jewish historian, but not a historian of the Jews, is co-opted onto a hiring committee to review the application of an exiled Israeli scholar specializing in the Spanish Inquisition. Oh, this is great. Wow. When, Benzi, when, when Benzi and Netanyahu shows up for an interview, blah, blah, blah. So that, that should be cool. And, um, you know, New York. That sounds fascinating. Books, if you want to forgive me and send me a review copy, I, I, I promise to give it a fair shake. <laughs> yeah, see, I mean, the, uh, most of the descriptions of, well, I'm not most, but the descriptions that I've read so far of Cohen's books uh, are so fascinating. And that's what made me pick up wits, you know. I went to the library, yeah. got a copy, I, I read, and it just didn't go. But the descriptions are fascinating. Um and before we go, Rob, I also wanted to mention yeah. my sort of current reading, uh, meaning contemporary novel. I picked up Sam Rivieri's Dead Souls. He's okay. a British poet. It's his first novel. Obviously, Dead Souls, a nod to Gogol. Um, yeah. uh, it's just it's it's a, it's it's really fun to read because it reminded me a little bit of uh, actually quite a lot of uh, Thomas Bernhardt's style. I mean, it's pretty much Bern Bernhardt, you know. It's Bernhardt style. It's kind of he borrowed it really for this book. Um, and there are so many writers that seem to be writing in his style nowadays. It's um, it's almost like off-putting. Um, and so I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, uh, it's it's an interesting book because it's um, again there's no there's no paragraph breaks. Um, it's I think it starts very very powerfully and then kind of loses me a little bit in the bit in the middle. Um, but I'm fighting through it and hopefully it will it will i'll finish it um but it made me think about again bernhard and his huge influence yeah. on 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 the current copper writers uh um and i'm 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 almost like anti that right now because you know bernhard did it best so i understand the, the allure of the style i mean i I certainly wrote pastiches for myself, you know, using that kind of um, style. Right, yeah. um, but I think Sam Riviera kind of pulls it off. So I, I recommend this book, Dead, Dead Souls. Um, it's just fun to read because it makes you stop and not stop. It makes you sort of makes your brain 
uh, read differently. You have to sort of switch from the normal track of reading to something you're reading art. You're reading something that's composed with care and the prose is not your average prose. So if you're a fan of, of Bernhardt, uh, I think take a look at this book. Um, it's, it's, it's fun. You heard it here. Yeah. Um, oh, so maybe oh, that's uh, it. Go ahead, no, yeah. no, no. I got to mention Greg, our buddy Greg Gerke. He's has, uh, I just saw it on Twitter. Greg. He has a new venture. Uh, it's going to be a long form um, a journal, I believe, uh, called Socrates really? on the Beach. I don't know if you saw what? that, Rob. Did you? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's starting kind of a, I think he wrote. Greg, uh, are you taking tweet. submissions? Wow. <laughs> he is. He just posted something about submissions. Uh, he is taking submissions. So you should definitely apply, Rob. Um, um, but he, uh, it's just, uh, it's just, uh, you know, we got to support. I think it's his answer to Substack, the rise of Substack. Um, he just wants to do something different, and I applaud him for that. Uh, uh, and I think I'm going to try to support that venture as much as I can uh, by just talking about it. And 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 hopefully, I mean, I don't know if you, I guess you haven't seen it yet. So, but yeah, the the list of contributors for the you know the first issue is quite impressive. So. Uh, Rob, definitely check it out. I'd like to see your name in that list at some point. Yeah, I'm looking. Uh, this is a journal for longer essays and fiction. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and, and here's here's the shocking part. It says contributors will be paid. Wow. Yes. Yes. That's because that's it's just so uh, so unusual nowadays. <laughs> wow. So we I, have to I, support him. We have to support him for that for sure. Excellent. Thank you, Roman. Yeah, that's a great, uh, a great point. Um, so yeah, so I, that's probably a good, good place to stop. And it's just been fun. And uh, that's all I can say. And, you know, thank you, uh, Heston, our sound engineer, Heston Hoffman. Yes, thanks, and, Heston. Uh, yeah, we'll do it again. Yeah, totally. And, um, you know, Roman, obviously, we'll talk more offline. But, you know, good luck for your, your upcoming uh temporary-ish return to New York, so that'll be good. Um, yeah, thanks, man. Next next podcast, you guys will be hearing some, some uh, Manhattan traffic noise. Uh, hopefully, we'll, not too loud. Because exactly. I'll, I'll, I'll be right on the avenue. Exactly. Oh, so that's it. Um, and again, you know, check us out on Twitter, at FeelBookish. And uh, we do have a website coming. Uh, who knows when? Speaking of, uh, you know, lazy <laughs> people, I don't know when I'll do it. <laughs> but uh, that's about it. Uh Thanks, guys. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. You can find Feeling Bookish on Twitter at FeelBookish and on Instagram at Feeling Bookish Podcast. Thanks for listening.